special day here in the life of our church, a, a day where we've gathered together in one service to celebrate and partake in the Lord's Supper. So we're excited about that. We're thankful. We're thankful first, of course, that our students made it back safely, that Kevin made it back alive. <laughs> and uh, put that one, another one under your belt, Kevin, there. Really thankful for the already the word we've heard, we've heard about the work that's, that was done there in New Hampshire, and we pray that God will take the work of those students and our leadership and strengthen that and encourage that and cause it to lead to growth and the Lord's praise there in that place. I'm excited. Uh, we just about every week this summer have commissioned a team to go somewhere. So at the end of the service today, we'll have another commissioning just a short time and this will be a special one for me because I get to go. How about that for you guys? Uh, Pastor Stephen and myself will be going to South Asia. As you know, we have a partnership with the International Mission Board in South Asia there to do a few things over the next few days. We'll be uh, strengthening and reconnecting with national partners, teaching and training them. We'll be meeting with the leadership of all of our uh, IMB personnel in South Asia and, and speaking there. I'll be speaking to them for a few days. And then we'll be exploring some new difficult places to get to that the Lord may be opening up for us as a church. So we're excited about this opportunity. Pray uh, that that bus ride was hard for a 6'5 dude in economy. 16 hours is rough as well. So be praying, praying for that, but also be praying that the Lord's work will be done there, there as we go to South Asia. And we'll be uh, having that prayer time at the end of our service. I'm going to ask you if you have your Bibles to take them, and we're going to look together. As I said, this is, uh, we'll be looking to, I, I need to go ahead and tell you where, Nahum, because that'll give you some time to find it. We'll be looking together there, the Lord's Supper, this first Sunday in July, we always take it together as the Lord's Supper. Now, throughout our year, we celebrate the Lord's Supper several occasions. A lot of times in the evenings in the fall, we'll do it there at Good Friday um, in the spring as well, and, and also in January in the evenings. But we, we celebrate on occasions through, we take this Sunday to set aside to celebrate the Lord's Supper. This supper was instituted by Christ himself. We find it in Matthew's gospel. We find it in Mark's gospel, Luke's gospel. Of course, it's the night upon which Jesus was betrayed as he gathered with his disciples to partake of the Passover meal and he instituted on that evening what we know as the Lord's Supper where he said that the bread that you eat is his body broken for you and the blood that you, the, the, the wine that you drink is the blood that was spilt and shed for you. Not only do we find it in the gospels, we find Paul teaching about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. The Lord's Supper is what we call an ordinance of the church. An ordinance simply means something that has been prescribed by our authority. We see what makes the Lord's Supper an ordinance. We have two of those in our church, baptism and the Lord's Supper. What makes it this is that it was practiced by Jesus. Jesus took part in it. 
It was prescribed by Jesus. He told us to continue to do this until he returns. And it was taught by the apostles as the Apostle Paul teaches us how to partake of the Lord's Supper. Therefore, it has been instituted for us as a church, baptism and the Lord's Supper, as two ordinances that we partake of for our good and a demonstration to the world of the salvation we have received in Christ. When the Apostle Paul was teaching about the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11 and what were the requirements to come to the table and partake, first and simply foremost was to believe, trust in Jesus for life and salvation, put your faith in him. He also said following him in baptism, that other ordinance of the church, so that we are obedient to him as we belong to Christ, publicly professing that. And then, of course, not just belief in baptism, but also, but also living a life of obedience and repentance. We come to the Lord's table repentant before God, believing, trusting, and obedience and repentant before him. It's a call, the Lord's table. The Lord's supper is a call to those very things. Obedience, faithfulness, thanksgiving, repentance, and dependence. In a week that we, when we celebrate our independence as a country, one of my favorite holidays right next to Thanksgiving, we celebrate one of our holidays here to rejoice in our own independence as a country. It's good for us on this Sunday to celebrate our Savior and what he has accomplished for us on the cross and a recognition that we as a people are actually absolutely dependent upon him and what he has done for us in our place. And so it may seem strange today, but we're going to stay in our summer series, Summer in the Minors, and a sermon on the Lord's Supper, I ask you to turn to Nahum. Some of y'all never been there before. I understand. It's okay. But we're going to look to Nahum this morning. I'm just simply going to read. In fact, I'm just going to go ahead and be honest. I had to put this little ribbon in my place. I'm simply going to read verse 7 of chapter 1, and then we'll pray. Nahum chapter 1, verse 7. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your kindness to us and allowing us this privilege to gather here today. God, as we come here today, may your word resonate in every heart, in every soul, in every body, in every, every spirit here today, Father. We pray that, that your word will ring true and that, God, not only will it ring true, that we as a people will follow you that we as a people will recognize today that we're utterly and completely dependent upon you, that our breath is a gift from you, the very fact our heart is beating is a gift from you. And the very fact that we are here today, Father, is a, is a joy that you have done. And so, God, as we come together now, may this thanksgiving well up in our very, our very souls. May we look to you for all that we need. May we find hope in the midst of despair or grace, Father, in the midst of judgment. God, help us now. Help us now by making your son 
be exalted in this place. All for your glory and for your name we pray. Amen. Nahum chapter 1 verse 7 is a drop of refreshing grace in the midst of some tough judgment passages. Like many of the prophets, we know very little about them personally. Nahum is the same. It just simply says he is uh, Nahum of Elkosh. We have no idea, not really sure where Elkosh is or was or ever has been. We know it's true. We know it's real from the word, but we have no idea where to place that. Maybe, as some have said, he's from the north side of Galilee. Y'all may have heard of the, the city named Capernaum. That city just simply means Nahum's village. Possibly that's the location of where Nahum was from. But I want us to note in this as we think about it with several of our prophets. Amos was a shepherd. Micah was a country boy. Not sure about Joel. Not sure about some of the others. And in the same way, it's like this with Nahum. But we need to recognize this morning but that God and the Bible's authority, the Bible's integrity, and the Bible's value are not dependent on the background of their human authors. It's not the author's characters or reputation here that we are looking toward. We know that God's word has been inspired by the very spirit of God himself. That all scripture, as 2 Timothy said, is breathed out by God. And what we find when we see these minor prophets like Joel and Amos and, and Nahum, what we find when we read them and see them is that God teaches us another truth that he can use anybody to bring his word and his truth. He can use any one of us, whether we're country boys or shepherds, whatever it may be, wherever we may be from, any one of us can be vessels of God's word. What matters when we get to Nahum is this, the Lord says, the Lord says. And so as God's word has come to us through Nahum by the Holy Spirit, we find it to be beneficial for us today. For God's word has said. And here Nahum, this one that we are looking to this morning for this word, is going to bring a message about the Ninevites. We have heard of Nineveh before. Surely you have seen or read Jonah or at least seen the VeggieTales movie about it. You know Nineveh. You know where Nineveh is. You know that story. In fact, Pastor Jeremy did a great job preaching for us through Nineveh. And we know the story of Jonah. Jonah was told to go to Nineveh and preach the gospel to them, preach the good news to them. Jonah got mad, said no, went the other direction. Y'all know what happened. Finally, the Lord turned him around with a big fish, spit him out. He preached, and many of the Ninevites believed. But did you know that Nahum is also about Nineveh. It's 47 verses here in Nahum deliver some of the greatest judgment passages in Scripture. The greatest destruction passages in Scripture come about Nineveh here in Nahum. Nineveh was a powerful city. It towered over all other cities. It was a bit of a marvel of its day. It was the capital of Assyria, an empire built by the great king Sennacherib. And when Sennacherib built his temple, his palace, they simply named it the palace without a rival. 
Sennacherib wanted to protect his, his city in such a way as never been seen before. So he put great walls around the city, towering over all the other, all the other towns around it. But not only he put a great wall around it, he put a moat around the wall, building a full river system around the city so that it was impenetrable. But here, that wasn't the only thing. Sennacherib devised a plan because the fear from an impenetrable city is that an army could surround it and put it under siege and keep it from getting the goods it needs. But Sennacherib built the first aqueduct that we can find an underground water system that fed the city with unlimited water supply. So he said, you can't even take our city by siege. And so the idea here was that Assyria and the city of Nineveh were impenetrable and you could not stop it. The most powerful city around. And because of that, they were hated. In fact, Nahum tells them that the reason they became so powerful in chapter 3 is because they stole from all the other cities. They ransacked everywhere else. They took what was not theirs. They, they went in unilaterally, unprovoked to other places and, and stole from them so they, they could have great wealth and riches. They were a bloody city, as Nahum says in chapter 3, verse 1, full of lies and full of plunder. No end to the prey that they go after. This book is one of only two in all of scripture that ends with the question for upon whom has not come your unceasing evil verse 19 says the city of Nineveh was an evil city that had robbed and stolen and and taken things that were not theirs to become powerful and rich and because of that God was ready to pronounce his judgment because of that also Nobody liked Nineveh. Nineveh was hated. I mean, you see this in the attitude of Jonah. You see, you see Jonah saying, I am not going to those people. It will not happen. He despised them. And even when they were reached, even when some of them believed, Jonah was still upset about it. He despised that city, and it was hated all around. So if you could kind of get a timeline here of what happens with Nineveh. Jonah is writing about 786 to 746 B.C. First, uh, Second Kings tells us it's during the, the time of Jeroboam II, so he's writing during this period. And Jonah goes to them to call on them to repentance. But after that, after there's repentance in the place, as some believe, that city of Nineveh takes off and destroys the Assyrian forces, destroys Samaria and the northern kingdom of Israel. Israel becomes one of the places that they plunder, if you will, and they destroy Samaria and they destroy the northern kingdom. As God has warned that northern kingdom because of their sin, he will use the Assyrians to Bring judgment upon them. And so Assyria, Jonah witnesses to them, proclaims the message. Assyria goes in and destroys Samaria. God uses them to do that, to bring judgment. And now Nahum comes later. After Assyria has destroyed Israel, after they continue to get powerful, Nahum comes in sometime after about 663 B.C., the city of Thebes is mentioned here in Nahum, which, which fell in 663 B.C. And he says the Assyrians had destroyed this great city of Thebes in Egypt. And, and God says, 
Do you think what happened to Thebes cannot happen to you? And so sometimes after, after that, the Assyrians uh, will be destroyed. That's Nahum's prophecy. Nahum says that it's coming. Nobody believes Nahum. Assyria is too great. It's too strong. Nobody believes him. But after Nahum's prophecy in 612 BC, Nineveh finally falls, just as God said it was. So if we can put the timeline together, God sends someone to preach the gospel to them, to preach the good news to them, to repent and turn to God. They only increase in anger and go after the northern kingdom of Israel and destroy him. God has another prophet come to them and say, because of your great sinfulness, you will be destroyed. And finally, they are destroyed. He preached, sent someone with the good news before destruction comes. Before destruction comes. Nahum is telling us that the destruction that's going to come to Nineveh is going to come because of the very character and nature of God himself. Read with me in Nahum chapter 1, verse 2. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it, who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces. God, in his great holiness, in his purity, in his righteousness, is angry about sin. He's angry about what they have done. He's angry about their sinfulness, and it says because of who God is, a jealous and avenging God, Because of who God is, wrathful, bringing vengeance to those who are against him. Because of who God is, destruction is coming to Nineveh. Destruction is coming to Nineveh. God's judgment, it's announced, is coming against sin. Now, before we get too deep in this, I don't want to linger in this too long. You know, every Sunday we come and we've been walking through the minor prophets and we've seen this message over and over again about God's righteousness and his holiness and the sinfulness of humanity that brings judgment upon them. And so oftentimes our idea is just to turn our ear away. I don't want to hear about that again, Brother Josh. But my friends, whenever, whenever the Pharisees came to John the Baptist, where when Jesus was being baptized and, and they walked up, remember what the, John the Baptist said to them? Who told you to flee the wrath to come? You see, my friends, what happens oftentimes is we want to give some therapeutic situations or some therapeutic advice for us so that we can just simply cope through the day. But what we must be concerned about as ministers of the gospel, as faithful followers of Jesus, is not just coping through today. It is finding a way to find salvation in all of eternity. 
What we long for is not just for this day to be taken care of, but for our eternal life to be secured. And the only way that can be done is if we hear the clear and constant warning of the Lord that it's our sin that has turned God against us. That it's our sin that will bring judgment. It's our sin that God is angry at. And it is right. It is right for him to be angry. If God is holy at all, if God has an ounce of justice in his character, indeed, if God exists as God, how could he possibly be anything else but angry at sin? How could he possibly be anything else that angry as rebellion to his character and to his name from his creation? And we, we are sinners. In fact, the scripture makes a few things clear, and one of them is this, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and the wages of that sin is death. We violate God's holiness. We insult his justice. We presume upon his kindness. We make light of his grace. And a God who has no justice and power to carry out his judgment is no God at all. He's an idol of our own making. Just like the, the wood and stone of Nineveh that they bow down to that God brings judgment for, we must not make idols out of God. But we may look to his word. And we find that God is going to judge sin. And his judge will be quick and it will be sure. His judge will be right and it will be true. His judgment will come against sin. And all of us who are in sin will be a part of that judgment. We as sinners are exposed to God's anger. We're exposed to God's wrath. Just like Nineveh was. And he says he's going to turn Nineveh into water. He's going to crumble it to sand because of their sin. And all of us who are sinners are exposed to God's wrath. Just like, in fact, the question at the end of that section I just read, who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? Maybe anticipating that very question, who can stand? Who can endure this? We find verse 7. The Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows who take refuge in him. In the midst of the judgment passes, we get this little bit of, of water here that refreshes our soul. Who can stand? No one. Who can go against the heat of his anger? No one. But the Lord is good. He never denies his word. He never goes away from his promises. He's good. He never turns his heart away from his people. He's good. We can trust him by what he says. He is good. And surely as he says judgment is coming, he also tells us that he is a stronghold in the day of trouble for his people. That judgment we've talked about before is the day of trouble. It's that day when he'll come to bring trouble upon those who were sinned against him. And he says, just as sure as that judgment is coming, those who are in him, he is a stronghold for them. In other words, he's the protection. 
All the impenetrable cities of the world like Nineveh with their rivers, their moats, their walls, all of them have come crashing down and they've been overthrown. But it's the Lord God Almighty who is a stronghold for his people. This stronghold cannot be taken down. It cannot be sieged. It cannot be destroyed. It is God Almighty who his people find refuge in, as Psalm 46 says. The Lord is good and he's a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. My friends, this truth should sink deeply into our very hearts. He knows those who take refuge in him. The Lord God knows the hearts of his people. Still, he lets them in. Our great desire, more than anything else, is to be truly loved. Be truly loved. That's what we want. We want people to truly love us. Our problem is, we oftentimes believe that if we're fully known, you won't truly love us. If you know everything about me, you may not want me as your pastor. If you know every thought that came through my head, everything I've ever done, everything I've ever tried and failed at, you may not want me. And my fear is I can't tell you all of that because if I tell you all of that, then you won't love me or care for me anymore. And you think the same way. Even our most intimate relationships, we don't say everything that goes through our mind. Because we know if we were fully known, nobody would love us. But God does. God fully knows everything about us. In fact, it tells us in his word that he knows every thought before we even think it. He knows every deed. He's seen where you've been done. In fact, I lo- you watch on the internet now, and they got videos of everything. They got videos on street cameras. They got um, street poles. They got them everywhere. Everything you do now has been seen, right? And so we're starting to see a lot of things that are just crazy in the world because everything's being, I want to say everything's on being recorded, but I don't think you're supposed to say that anymore. Everything there, you watch it on the tape. That's old too. Everything we see is done and people see it and it's in open and we're saying, my goodness, people are living. But my friends, we have been living our whole lives before an audience of one. Everything that we've ever done and everything we've ever said and everything we've ever thought is fully known by God, yet he still loves us. You see, in the midst of this judgment passage, it tells us, but you don't need to forget. It tells us he is a jealous God, he's an avenging God, he's a wrathful God, but he is good. Meaning, he is going to tell you exactly what is expected, exactly what you must do. He is going to do for you what you cannot do for yourself, and you can trust his promises. And he is safe. You can hide in the city of Nineveh all you want, thinking you're protected from the world and nothing can knock this city down, but it will come to the ground and it will go away like water. But God is a stronghold. And you can look to him and he knows you're there in his city and he knows everything about you and he still keeps you there. He wants you there. If you are his people, he knows you and he loves you. Chapter 2, verse 10, as Nineveh is falling, the leaders of Nineveh, 
desolate, desolation and ruin, hearts melt, knees tremble, anguish in all loins, all faces grow pale. Where is the lion's den, the feeding places of the young lions? Where the lion and the lionesses went, where his cubs were with none to destroy? In other words, who were the ones, whenever the city begins to fall, that flees to the safe places? It was the leaders of Nineveh, the, the rulers, the princes of Nineveh. He's saying, where are they? Where did they go? They've run off. They've tried to even hide even more. The lion tore enough food for his cubs and strangled prey for his lionesses. He filled his caves with prey, his dens with torn flesh. Your leaders have even run off and they're keeping some stuff back for themselves. They've forgotten about you. But I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will burn your chariots in smoke and the, and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth and the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. Even the leadership of Nineveh who will do and have all the resources they can have will run and flee to protect themselves and the Lord says, I will come after them. I'll come after them. Their kings cannot protect them. Their rulers cannot protect them anymore. Judgment will come to them all. You may be thinking, I'd like to see how he gets this thing to the Lord's Supper. But maybe in this you've already heard some key points here. The Lord is good. The Lord is a refuge for his people, a stronghold in the day of trouble. You see, the kings of this earth referred to in this passage as the lions. They think they know better than God. They set themselves up as gods, oftentimes themselves. King Sennacherib believed he was a god and required the people to worship him. Those kings set themselves up and they think they've got all the resources they need and they can hide anywhere you go. But what we will find out as the text continues on is that we have a king. We have a king who's referred to as the lion of the tribe of Judah, right? And that king is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He has come for his people. And he has redeemed them and saved them. And he has destroyed their enemies. And our enemies are not Nineveh. In fact, we're in the same place as Nineveh. This is what the Lord's saying here. Our enemies are ultimately not Nineveh or anyone of this world. Our great enemies are sin and death itself. And who can take them out? Who can destroy them? Well, it will be our king, our lion, that will come and fight for us and devour our enemies. And what will our lion do as he fights for us? He will tear off some morsels of food and give them so that we can survive. My friends, what we find when we look to God's word is that all of the good promises of God come together in Jesus Christ. There on the cross, judgment of sin, judgment of God comes. The cross becomes the place where the wicked will not get away with it and grace will flow. 
The cross becomes the grace, the place where the, the promises of God that are seemingly contradictory flow together in one because their judgment and grace flow down. Their mercy and love come with the wrath of God at the same time because it's Jesus, our great lion of the tribe of Judah, that will die in our place taking on the full wrath of God for us. All that Nineveh got, Jesus took in our behalf. All that we deserve, Jesus took on our behalf. There on the cross, he who knew no sin became sin, took the wrath of God in our place so that we, we can be free. So that we can find peace in the stronghold of God and nothing can come against us. So that we can be fully known yet fully loved. Why? Because yes, he knows we are a sinner. Yes, he knows every wicked thought. Yes, he knows every deed we committed. But he also knows that his son has paid for them all. And there's nothing left for us. You see, the judgment that comes on Nineveh is the very same judgment that all sinners deserve. And it's the very same judgment that Jesus took on our behalf. So Nahum 1.7 is teaching us that the Lord is good. Look to Jesus. He's a stronghold in the day of trouble. Look to Jesus. He knows his people and everyone who takes refuge in them. Look to Jesus. And what we do when we partake of the Lord's Supper is that we eat and we drink those morsels that have been set aside for us that remind us even amongst our enemies that Christ Jesus is enough. That his body was broken and his blood was shed so that we can go free. That's why we celebrate this for what Christ Jesus has done for us. Simply, I ask you now, as Pastor Kevin and the group comes and leads us in a song of how deep the Father's love for us, it asks the very question that we see here in Nahum. How could I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know. God's wounds in Christ Jesus have paid our ransom. My prayer is that that's what you know today. That Jesus Christ, and because of his great love for you, has paid your ransom. That you'll know in the midst of judgment the Lord is good and a stronghold and a refuge and we find all of that in Christ. Today you can turn from your sin and the judgment that's coming to you by trusting in Jesus just simply by calling upon his name. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Turn from your sin, repent of it and trust in him. Today you can do that very thing. Some will be standing here at the front receive you if you would like. But what I would like for us to do now as they come up to lead us, as I'd like for you to stay seated, I'd like for every, everyone in the church, heads bowed, eyes closed, consider what Christ Jesus has done for you. Before we partake of this meal, do what Paul says, turn from your sin and, and confess it to the Lord and say, Lord, I want to follow you today. Let this be a recommitment in some ways for you. More than anything else,
be thankful, thankful of what Christ has done to save you from the judgment of God, to give you eternal life. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this day and this opportunity. Your kindness to us, Father, is so great. Some are here today that may need to turn to you, and I pray that your spirit would be working upon their hearts even now and that they would trust in you. Turn from their sins, repent of their sins, and trust in you, knowing that you are the stronghold. You are the one who is good. You are the one who can save them, and there is no other. God, work in this place in every heart and every life. May we take this moment serious as we do business with you in all your glory. Thank you for this time.